Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, July 3rd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk all about Spider-Man Far From Home in a full spoiler discussion. My name is Ben Pearson. I am the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's podcast by Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. I am here. This is weird. <laughs> it is I don't, weird. I don't know what to say. I don't have a, uh, <laughs> I don't have a call sign or what everybody else does. Like, it's... I can't be like... Oh, man. That's me. That is so weird. All right. Uh, managing editor Jacob Hall is also with us. Hello, hello. Weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. So for people who are probably wondering, like, what the hell is going on, uh, I'm hosting this episode. I'm recording it. Peter has uh, – there's something going on in your apartment, right, Peter? That, that's what's happening here. Yeah, there's there's a mold problem in um, the roof of my bedrooms. They're now – it, it, my bedroom basically looks like uh, – do you remember when they had E.T. cordoned off in that government facility with all the, like, <laughs> tents and stuff? That's what my bedroom looks like. <laughs> all right. So just fair warning for everybody uh, as we dive in right now. We are going to spoil yeah. Spider-Man Far From Home. We are going to spoil probably every other movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe thus far. So if you have not seen the movie yet, now is a great time to turn the podcast off, go check out the film, and then come back. So I just wanted to make that abundantly clear right at the top of the show so people don't yell at us about spoilers. Uh, Before we get into our discussion about the movie, though, Peter, you wanted to talk about a trailer that you saw before your screening of the film. Yeah, I saw this trailer, The Art of Racing in the Rain. Has anybody else seen this trailer? I've never even heard of this before. Is that the dog movie? Yes, it's the dog movie. So I, I guess with all these, what's that dog series of the the dying dogs that keep on reincarnating? A dog's journey or a, a dog's purpose. Yeah, I think like basically that has set off this this trend of dog movies. And there's this new one that has Milo, uh, whatever his name, from Heroes and um, This Is Us. And it stars him. He gets a dog and he wants to be a, like a NASCAR racer. And the dog... Like, you can hear what the dog's saying. Like, uh, well, the dog has, you can hear the dog's thoughts. And it's the life lessons learned between this dog named Enzo and his race car driver owner, Denny. 
and it looks horrible. I, I, I was hoping you guys had seen this because... I had seen this trailer, actually, and I learned that they have... Uh, Universal has been trying to get this project off the ground for 10 years now. Oh, wow. It, it looks... Like, honestly, I, I think if you put this trailer in, like, a movie that has fake movie trailers, that you'd believe that this is a fake movie trailer. It's that bad. you got to check it out. Um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's called The Art of Racing in the Rain, and I, I don't believe this even exists, but it does. It's based on a best-selling book. Wow. All right. And I think Kevin Costner is the voice of the dog. I think yeah. so, yeah. Amanda Seyfried's in this movie, too. What? What is going on with that? I, I, bet gonna... you, I bet you her character in that movie can use her boobs to tell when it's raining. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Remember oh. yes, remember when I was saying that I was not excited for a lot of movies coming out? This is why. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about a movie that maybe some of us can get excited about, and that is Spider-Man Far From Home. This is uh, Sony and Marvel's latest film in the MCU, the, the newest entry. Some of us have already given our brief thoughts about this movie, but I think Jacob and Brad, you guys just saw this last night. Is that right? So um, let's, let's start with Brad. What did you think about this film? Uh, I loved it. I really did. I, I liked it uh, more than I thought I would. Um, we had talked about it before after you had seen it, and you talked about certain certain details on it, and it seemed like it was kind of crowded and, and messy a little bit. But for me, it just I love how wild and weird this movie gets, thanks to the arrival of Mysterio, and uh, it, it really just kind of shakes it shakes it shakes up the Marvel formula for me um, just enough for this to feel. Like something that is new and exciting, you know. Even the action sequences in this, uh, especially once you get towards the the third act, feel like something really cool that we haven't seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe before. Um, and yeah, a, a big part of why this movie works so well is simply because of Jake Gyllenhaal and his performance. But I also like what this movie does with uh, Spider-Man as a character and just how uh, it advances him and evolves him in kind of a way where Peter's overwhelmed. And it's just it does some interesting things with the aftermath of Avengers Endgame and how it affects Spider-Man. And even though it it makes the movie feel like it probably couldn't function as well without um, the events of Endgame and so it doesn't stand alone as well, I think that it works very well in um, despite that. You know, I, I think that especially when it comes to this specific franchise, we kind of have to accept that there are going to be these interconnected elements. But for me... I think the story still has, you know, a solid beginning, middle, and end for Peter Parker, and it's, uh, yeah, I, I just, I liked it a lot. Jacob, what did you think? I think it's a good movie. I think it's a shotgun blast of a movie that is trying to a half dozen different targets at once, which means that it's maybe not connecting with all of them as strongly as it should, uh, but it is connecting a lot of things that I find very interesting, and maybe it's not as focused as the best Marvel movies, uh, but just in terms of its ambitions and its scope, it's really going for it in a way that I admired and a way that I think does harm the film. But those, when I say harm, I mean, it, it makes it, you know, an incredibly fun, messy time instead of a, you know, an, a total mess. Uh, we'll talk about more of this going on, but I think this is very much the first massive piece of blockbuster cinema to be directly about the Trump era which was very interesting and really informs the villain of the film in a way that I found on the nose, but also accurate. So we'll get into that in a bit. It's, it's a good movie with big ambitions. I wish it had been maybe uh, honed into a finer point, but you know what? I will take a messy and 
uh, with a big you know grasp over a firm grip and small ambition. Yeah. yeah. By the way, I, I would say um, when I, I was on set of um, Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, Michael Keaton was talking a lot about how his character was kind of um, thought of in the, the light of Trump and that whole thing. Uh, so I wouldn't say this is the beginning of this for even this franchise that is going in this direction. If you think about, you know, working class guy, you know, that whole storyline and that first one. And we'll get to this later. But I did want to mention I saw this film for a second time last night and I did enjoy it more. I think I've come to the conclusion that I just don't love it when it gets broader and bigger. If that makes sense. Hmm. Like, I, I think I like my Marvel movies when they're more grounded and more, you know, not crazy earth monsters and, you know. Yeah, it yeah. certainly seems like they they set the groundwork for the Spider-Man character in, in that mold, you know, with Homecoming, which is, like, maybe the smallest movie of the MCU in terms of, like, uh, its scope and ambitions. It's a, it's a very small movie, and this one sort of um, expands it out with the concept of, of this European vacation, but we'll talk about that in just a second. So the, the film opens with uh, a quick jaunt to Mexico with uh, Nick Fury and Maria Hill, and um, there's this very, very short moment where one of the elementals rises up, and we see Jake Gyllenhaal's Mysterio for the first time, and then we get into the real start of the movie, which uh, begins with Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, which I thought was hilarious. It's a high school news report, sort of an opening sequence here where... Um, that's again a callback to homecoming but this sort of thing uh gets into the implications and the the after effects of avengers endgame so um jacob what did you make of the blip and and the way that this sequence sort of uh tackled uh, and carried the load that endgame offloaded to it uh i'll start with the basic construction of the video report first which is incredibly funny uh, it's an incredibly tacky made by 14 year olds video complete with comic sans and getty image watermarks on some of the images and it's, it's incredibly funny it is very tacky very homemade i'm not sure i buy that kids from a really nice magnet school would make something so trashy looking but the joke is worth it and i think i think it's a really good job of resetting where we are establishing what the blip was having some very funny scenes that uh show us the aftermath in civilian situations of people reappearing uh, when everything is reversed. And it really lays the groundwork for a world where enough time has passed for the blip to start feeling normal, that people are, you know, forming charities and talking about, man, my younger brother is older than me now, and where it's gotten just normal enough to be grounded. Uh, but at the same time, it is always hanging over this universe and that people are now aware of how incredibly crazy uh, the world has gotten. So it does a really good job of blending the mundane and the spectacular in a way that I think actually sets the stage for what the rest of this world is going to feel like for the next 10 years of Marvel. Hmm. Yeah, for me, I thought that it it was nice to see them address some of these things that, that Endgame, address some of the questions that Endgame posed, but I just didn't think that they went far enough with it. And I know that they, you know, this, this is a film that's trying to tell its own story. It's just that those questions are so interesting to me that I wish that there was more time to get into the implications and, and what could have happened there. But I guess for this movie, you know, to, to address it at all and just to try to, um, 
you know, pay some sort of lip service to it as all they could have done. But I mean, some of the jokes are pretty great. Like the the kid in the band returns and get, gets hit in the face with that basketball. Like that's one of the better jokes in the movie to me because I, I didn't really think that the humor overall in the film landed nearly as well as, as it has in some of the other Marvel movies. But, but what um, about Martin Starr talking about how his wife faked the yeah. lip to leave him? That, <laughs> that was probably the best joke of the movie. Yeah, that was another I, I will say one. this. I really, I even wrote an article about this, but I wasn't expecting the the Marvel movies at all to address what it was like when the people blip back and like being able to see that and have to joke about that and what what happens. I think is kind of fun. At the same time, though, it does uh, only like raise more questions about it because the one one of the scenarios we talked about was what happens when people were like on a plane. Or something like that. Like, they showed what happens in a stationary room. Like, they came back in exactly where they were. But what if you were in a car or a plane or something that was moving? I think it confirms that all those people fell to their deaths, doesn't it? That's <laughs> sad. <laughs> all right. Um, what if the next film, whatever it is, opens with Professor Hulk at a podium saying, and that concludes my two-hour lecture on the blip and how everything's okay, and everybody goes, oh, good, oh, that explains everything, and we move on. Would I everybody mean, be satisfied? I would be satisfied if they then presented that the entirety of that lecture on Disney+, Plus <laughs> because I actually want to see that. I want to yeah, know. I want to see Professor Hulk's head talk. <laughs> wait, wait, what, what if a future villain is the, the father of one of those kids who died on the plane? And he's coming Ooh. to take down the Avengers. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> it's a plot of Captain America Civil War, but point taken. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did want to mention that at the end of this news report, she does say uh, that she's ready to move on to the next phase of our lives. And I think that's kind of a clever double mm -hmm. meaning of we're moving on to the next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess let's talk about the premise of this movie, which is that the kids are going on this European vacation for it's supposed to be two weeks, I think. And um, there's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> I guess, romantic intrigue going on with the, the high school dynamics. So you've got Ned and Betty who suddenly become a couple, like, a against all odds, basically, over the course of this one flight. HT, um, what did you make I of... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it's hilarious that his whole plan was to be bachelors in Europe and like the first second of the trip, he becomes, you know, entwined with Betty. Yeah, that's a, that's a good joke in the moment. I'm wondering what you guys think about the relationship as it is sustained over the course of this movie, because spoiler alert, by the end of the film, they are not together anymore. So what do you guys make of this sort of like whirlwind romance uh, between Ned and Betty? Um, HT, let's start with you. I think it's pretty accurate to actual high school relationships because they can be over within a week sometimes. And I th I found it really fun. Um, and, you know, a, a fun little sort of subplot to the movie that uh, almost worked as more of just a, a recurring joke than anything. Um, and also just to rub it in uh, Peter's face as his love life grew more in shambles. But, um, yeah, I, I like that part a lot. In the, and I thought it was just kind of an added... Um, teen, like part of the teen experience that John Watts seems to have a good understanding of. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Anybody else there's, have any comments uh, there? There's an ongoing trend this year. Uh, I, we saw it in Booksmart. Uh, you, you will see it in Good Boys, which opens, uh, I think, this month or next month. And it's here, which is uh, young romance being treated less about like, you know, horny kids and more about like wholesome young people growing up with respect for each other and even when they're breaking up even when they break up um still maintaining a level of you're a human being and you're decent and i understand this and i think all three films 
mine tremendous comedy from relationships that are actually pretty healthy and not fraught with the usual teen cliche. So I hope this trend continues. I'm actually really enjoying it. All right. One of the other relationships in this film is between Happy Hogan and Aunt May. And I don't know about you guys. This one didn't really work for me. I think maybe because we saw in Homecoming that uh, Tony Stark was flirting with May and it, it just seemed like Happy was stepping in for for Tony in this weird way. And especially with the way that the film ended with with them sort of unsure about the future of their relationship it seemed like the movie was just trying something without actually committing to it and it just felt like a like an odd choice to me but i don't know did this work for anybody uh i think it's super cute uh i'm not sure if it's like a great ongoing relationship i want to see explored further on but i do think the uh two parental figures in peter parker's life from different ends uh go uh, dating uh, hooking up or if you want to call it uh, leads for a great teen crisis moment for Peter. So maybe as a relationship doesn't make much sense. And I actually enjoy the dynamic between all three of these characters. I think Peter interacting with Happy is fun. Peter acting with May is fun. I don't want to see this explored later on. I don't, I don't need them getting married. But I do think that having yet another uh, like personal crisis for Peter tossed into a film full of a half dozen crises is funny in the moment. But no, I, I, I hope this is the last of it. Yeah. Yeah, I like the moments that this uh, relationship offered, and I, but I do think it was kind of an excuse to uh, bring Marissa Tomei more into the movie because she doesn't really get much to do other than appear at the beginning and look just chic and fashionable the entire time. Uh, and this was just kind of their way of of uh, having her check in and like throwing some comedy in. And then the other big uh, romantic relationship is, of course, between Peter and MJ, and he spends most of the movie. Um, in this sort of like love triangle situation with this new guy named Brad Davis, who is a, a younger kid who did not get snapped away in the blip and who is now like the, I don't know, the stud of the school. And um, uh, what did you guys make of this uh, sort of, I, I guess this obstacle for Peter, this, this romantic obstacle, because you kind of know that it's not going to end with, <laughs> with Brad and MJ together, but uh, actually Brad, let's start with you. What did you make of this relationship? Yeah, I mean, this was something that I really enjoyed, and I'm just glad that they kept a lot of the high school stuff that made Homecoming so great. And you really feel for Peter because he's so desperate to make this connection with MJ, and you can see that they have a really cool chemistry. They're both uh, nerdy and quirky, and they have, uh, you know, she has this little dark sense of humor um, that he, you know, gets, and they, ju they just get each other, and they have this um, great dynamic between them. And introducing somebody like Brad is great because it gives Peter, you know, a foil in his teenage life, you know, just like he has many, you know, as a superhero. And so it's it's good to see the dichotomy between those two play out and then also see how just those elements interact with each other, especially when it comes to him almost accidentally uh, killing him with a drone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Peter, what did you think about um, the evolution of, of MJ, the fact that she got some more screen time here and, and the way that her relationship played out with Peter Parker over the movie? I mean, I love Peter and MJ like that relationship is the heart of these movies to me. And I wish there was actually more of it. Like watching this a second time, I'm, I'm kind of wondering. I don't know. I, I hate that I'm being so negative about this movie because I actually really liked it. But um, MJ doesn't get a whole lot to do in this movie. He's real. She's really this kind of uh, goal for Peter. He wants like to get object. with her. An object. And they make a joke of that. Like when he says, you know, you're pretty and she says, does that mean I have value? Um, but I feel like, you know, in the end, oh, she is smart. She figures out 
that he is Spider-Man, and I guess she does do some stuff to defend them at the end of the movie. But like, I feel like I want her to be more of a part of the movie. Am I wrong, HD? <laughs> Uh, no, you're not wrong at all. I, I felt the same way. I really love um, Zendaya's and uh, Tom Holland's chemistry. I could just watch a whole movie of just that. Uh, their awkwardness and their um, their very teenage sort of interactions were just a delight to watch. And I loved especially the the uh, the kiss. I thought it was one of the sweetest things um, and uh, something that was incredibly sincere. And yeah, I feel like she was so good in this role, but very underserved. Um, all right, so let's talk about uh, one of the big ideas of this movie, and that is uh, Tony Stark, who you know dies at the end of Avengers Endgame, but his legacy looms large over this entire film. And I think, you know, I, I wrote this piece that we'll link to in the show notes about how this movie really closes out uh, phase three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and one of the ways that it does that is by interrogating Tony Stark's legacy, which I think these... Um, these Spider-Man movies that Sony has been making and, and uh, along with Marvel have done an interesting thing here where they have placed Iron Man into them as a significant character. And, you know, Peter, you alluded to it before with Michael Keaton's Vulture and Homecoming and how, um, you know, he, that character, that villain is basically created due to the events of, of or the actions of Tony Stark in a way. And this movie is also, and we'll talk about this film's villain in just a second, but this movie has a, a similar kind of thing. Um, but Tony's Tony's shadow is all over this movie, and, and uh, Happy Hogan talks about it. Um, HT, I know that you pointed that out uh, in our, our Slack conversation. So what did you think about the way that, that Tony is like so integral to this movie, even though he's not actually in it? I do have mixed feelings about how closely tied this Spider-Man is to Tony Stark and Iron Man, but I do think that it is fitting that with um, the Spider-Man sequel, uh, it and the this being the film after Avengers Endgame, that this is what closes out Tony Stark's legacy, um, because it really does elevate uh, Iron Man and Tony Stark on a pedestal of sorts, but it makes sense to uh, Peter Parker's character and his arc that his mentor and his idol uh, passing on the burden of him and choosing him to be his successor, essentially, will play a huge part in his whole identity crisis. And it kind of adds like a fresh take to the whole Spider-Man existential crisis that we see we seen before he always has that conflict of whether he should choose between his his personal and his love life or his duties as spider-man and here it's um increased it's um the pressure is even more uh, isn't even more on because not only is it the duty to be a superhero but the duty to be iron man's Air, to be the next Iron Man and something that really weighs on him. So I like that, even if I do have mixed feelings and I feel like this is almost like another Iron Man sequel in a way because we, you know, it is all a lot about Iron Man. A lot of the supporting characters are from Iron Man films, Happy Hogan, even Nick Fury and, and Kobe Smulders. Um, Nick Fury was first introduced in the end credits of, of Iron Man and appeared in Iron Man 2. And the villain, too, is one that was um, that it was basically is very tied to Tony Stark and to Stark Industries and is kind of an echo of the Iron Man three villain played by Guy Pierce. Or uh, wait, the um, wait. Oh, it, is he is he uh, like an um, Aldrich 
Killian kind of guy as well? Because I haven't really thought about that. I thought about uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's Mysterio in terms of um, Ben Kingsley's, uh, what is it? What was this? that character's name? What is that? Mandarin. Oh, Mandarin. Mandarin, yeah. But yeah. Right. I think there's he, a he's lot like of... Both. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I was going to say that I, I think there's a lot of parallels to Iron Man 3 because you you have that and you have the big twist of this film. And you also have, you know, putting Peter in a situation where he doesn't have, you know, his, you know, he's in the, the dark. He has that like shadow suit. I, I feel like there's a lot of inspiration there from Iron Man 3. Hmm. Yeah. And I felt like in a lot of ways it was re-interrogating the, the storyline of Iron Man 3 and kind of repurposing it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we've danced around it enough. Let's get into the actual, or one of the, the twists in this movie, and that is that uh, Jake Hall's Mysterio is not who he claims to be. So there's this idea of multiverses that gets introduced, and there was a lot of discussion about this. We wrote a couple articles about this before this movie came out. Like, wow, this is an interesting direction for the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe to take by introducing the concept of, of different Earths and um, what sort of uh, implications could that have. And of course, it's revealed in this movie that uh, all of that is nonsense and it's it's basically just made up by Mysterio. Um, Jacob, I know that you're a, you're a fan of the comics and um, I'm just curious what you thought about Mysterio in this movie and, and how this film sort of plays with uh, those ideas. I do think some people are going to be disappointed that there is a multiverse villain uh, in this movie. I was not because I was expecting Mysterio to be full of crap and he is and he's gloriously full of crap because Jake Gyllenhaal rules in this movie. He is one of my favorite MCU villains, and I think they realize Mysterio so well in a really 2019 way. Um, I love the casting of Gyllenhaal here because he's a very versatile actor, but I feel like his two best modes are impossibly noble and impossibly unsettling. And the switch he flips about halfway through this movie, where Quentin Beck literally um, waits for Peter Parker to leave the room and then turns all his employees uh, and starts celebrating the victory that they've had over Spider-Man. It's such a devilish little moment, and he's such a scumbag, and he's such a... Uh, he's such a mercilessly uh, unlikable guy, and that's what I love about him. I'm t- I, sometimes I need villains who have motivation to understand, motivations that are tragic, uh, but Tony Stark fired Quentin Beck because he's a lunatic uh, and a dangerous guy, and we get that, we had to understand that pretty quickly when we realize the show he's been putting on. And Jenna Hale is clearly having fun. And by the end of the movie, he's strutting around in a mocap suit, controlling things from afar. Uh, I mean, we have a, uh, our spoiler review on the site by Josh Meyer goes into this in great detail. But it is very much a Trump analog, a guy who's trying to manufacture news to control the masses. And it is, I found it to be maybe a little bit messy in, in its delivery of trying to be a, about a dozen different things at once. Uh, but I admire the nerve and Gyllenhaal goes with it with gusto. And I love, I just love the entire take of Mysterio being this spurned asshole. <laughs> and which, you know, I don't, I, don't I, I didn't need Mysterio to have an actual reason for us to be on his side or, or see his point of view. I just wanted a good reason for Spider-Man to punch him in the face. And Jake Gyllenhaal supplies somebody oh so very punchable uh ht you love jake gyllenhaal what do you think i I love jake gyllenhaal and i love when he 
uh, is unleashed and goes manic like he does in roles like Nightcrawler, like Okja. And this is very much him dipping into that type of role and that type of niche. And he is just so manic and so petty. I love that he's basically just a petty bitch in this, <laughs> and which is the best way to describe Mysterio. He doesn't have you know, a tragic backstory or any actual good reason for unleashing this dastardly plan. He just is horrible. And I love that. He, um, um, Jack, Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah, like you said, uh, Jacob, he is able to like juggle those two personas so well. And, um, it's, and it's always unnerving in each way that he does it. When he plays that noble-browed hero, he still is a little bit unsettling, but you can't point, put your finger on why. But then when he switches uh, gears and goes into the full-fledged um, manic uh, villain, then he still is like very unnerving. And I love that he is able to bring that to a big-budget blockbuster movie um, and not just do it in character actor roles that he's done before. Yeah. Um, Peter, what did you think? Oh, 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 go ahead. I wanted to say, um, I, I know Marvel was heavily criticized in the first two phases for like their villains. And I feel like in this this last phase, they've kind of, you know, taken it up to the criticism and actually elevating these villains, even though like, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't have like the motives of, you know, maybe like the villains from Black Panther or, or whatnot. Like it's just I feel like they've done such a good job with the villains now. Uh, I'm just wondering, was anyone not expecting this twist? Because I feel like, you know, Mysterio in the comics is traditionally, you know, a guy that uses these, these illusions to, to fool people. So, I mean, if you know the comics, you already know this twist. And even if you don't know the comics, if you look at the like posters and the advertising, they're not advertising any real villains. They show like these elementals a little bit, but I feel like, Going in, even if I was like a non-comic savvy moviegoer, I would be like expecting when, when in this movie is there going to be the twist where it's re revealed that Mysterio is involved in this. Yeah, I mean, it's the same kind of thing, though, with with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Uh, you know, you never saw any clear villain in the marketing or anything like that on how, how it was presented. And so you're kind of left to assume that, you know, Ego was going to turn out to be the villain, even though he's Star-Lord's dad. And so you, some people probably figure it out a little bit later in the game. But yeah, it's, it's I don't think it's necessarily meant to be, you know, uh, the biggest twist. Yeah, I'm, uh, Brad, what did you think about that, though? Like even, you know, I, because I, I also knew the comic book history of Mysterio, but I found the twist to be interesting in the way that they, you know, not in the fact that he ended up being bad, but in in the way that, uh, in the reasoning behind it and, and the fact that, um, you know, that he was connected to Tony in this interesting way um, that I wasn't expecting. But what, what did you make of uh, of Mysterio's turn there? No, I, I like that a lot, actually. I, I do. Um, I like the idea of tying him into Tony's history and giving him an axe to grind against him and him trying to, you know, turn himself into this hero that he feels like he wasn't allowed to be because, you know, he was fired from Stark Industries and his tech was turned into, you know, uh, kind of kind of a joke. Um, I think my only problem with the execution of it is even as fun as it is to watch Hall excitedly spout all of that exposition in the. Uh, the fake bar that he created with with the hologram and everything is it's it almost requires too much uh, of him talking to explain all of the bits and pieces and running through his you know roster of um, you know people who who have helped him with the technology and stuff 
But the one thing that I, I did like um, is how once you find out that all this stuff is an illusion and everything is seeing how they prepare all this stuff. The whole thing where they're going through that rehearsal for the next attack and like they're testing out the damage that the guns from the drones do. Um, and he's like they're running through it with uh, Peter Billingsley doing doing the effects and setting up the hologram and everything. And like Jake Gyllenhaal is just acting like this spoiled theater director talking about all these details and he's you know trying to beef up the damage and then even in the third act climax i love the thing and like this is totally like what you know h he's talking about with him just being this petty bitch is when uh he's putting on this act like he's fighting this hologram meanwhile he's trying to tell the woman who created his cost the the costume that's for the cameras like he the cape needs to be steamed so that's not wrinkly because he might meet the queen and then he cuts back you know to executing all of the cues for the di different drones to acting like he's struggling and in a really big fight when he's talking to nick fury and it's just great to see gyllenhaal go back and forth through all these different motions when he's you know trying to put on the show yeah he's really dialing it up to 11 for sure in this movie and i i, I loved his performance in this film um i i, I love the bar retcon i almost wonder like if that stuff was put in there knowing that they eventually had to get to mysterio because like it seems so perfectly set up even though i'm pretty sure it's a retcon yeah um, it feels it feels pretty tacked on because of especially when they show like the quick cut to him standing off to the side of the the stage you know mm -hmm. um, oh, oh for sure but what i'm saying is like like what was that technology being built for like i feel like they didn't just introduce it for that one scene in what was that Infinity Civil War, War? Civil War, Civil War. Civil War. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, like it didn't really come into play later on I remember in the opening scene but it didn't quite come back up except to act as that emotional um sort of centerpiece yeah and by the way can we talk about Peter Billingsley who this is the character who appeared in Iron Man because he was a producer I think of John Favreau's and um if anybody listening out there, I'm sure everybody on this podcast recording knows who he is. But uh, this guy who was getting yelled at by um, Obadiah Stane. Obadiah Stane. Uh, many people might not know this. So I'm going I'm to put the question out there. I'm going to give you guys five seconds at home to tell me who Peter Billingsley is. Because he's in a movie that you've probably seen dozens of times. He's a star, the star of a movie that you've seen dozens of times. So I'll give you five seconds. Four. Three. He was Ralphie in A Christmas Story. Yeah, I thought it was pretty great that they got him back because, um, yeah. you know, I mean, that's just like that's one of those clever things that that these movies can do is they've built such a huge, intricate foundation that they can go back through and like mine their own work to find different angles and interesting aspects of exploring stuff like this. And I think the barf thing is really interesting because that te that technology even though it wasn't necessarily used that much before in the MCU, can result in some really interesting stuff when it's in Mysterio's hands, like the nightmare illusion sequence. So that's that's one of the most interesting visual aspects of this entire movie. It really it reminded me a little bit of Doctor Strange almost, like just the the idea of like they have any they could do anything um, w with that technology. Uh, Jacob, what did you think about that that nightmare sequence? Yeah, I thought about Doctor Strange, but I also thought about uh, a Batman villain. I thought about Scarecrow and his fear gas and how this is probably the best Scarecrow sequence ever put in a superhero movie. It's not even Scarecrow or Batman, it's Spider-Man and Mysterio. And that whole sequence where uh, where Mysterio uh, traps Spider-Man in a virtual space and torments him with visuals and tricks him and 
brings him in and out of reality or fake realities within fake realities is really unnerving and really exciting and terrifying. And it really feeds into it. It, it makes very literal the uh, subtext of Mysterio's plan, which is to create fake news and create a reality where we believe the impossible and believe uh, non-facts uh, because that's, that's what's being put in front of us. In fact, Peter Parker's journey in this movie is many ways to get his spider sense working, which means for us as viewers to understand when we're being presented with BS, understand when the world around us is being crafted by people who are trying to control to control our perception. So Mysterio, it, you know, we can talk all day about it, him being, you know, a Trump era villain, which he very clearly is. But I think these visuals, in, in addition to being genuinely arresting and being like frightening in a way that they need to be in order to really emotionally and mentally take down someone as powerful as Spider-Man. They, they, they take the concept of fake news and the concept of lies being made as real as possible and having real changes on human beings and their actual world by literally putting there in front of us. And it's no coincidence, no accident. Spider-Man's final battle is to dodge the fake news so we can get to the real threat and take it down. Uh, that is all my favorite part of the movie. It's not obvious. It's a sledgehammer, but it's a sledgehammer that I think is wielded with by people who know how to swing it. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good yeah. way to put it. Um, anybody else have any uh, any standout? I, moments I do have from... a question for you. I have a question about um, I have a nitpicky question about the logistics of what's happening here. So. What was Mysterio's plan? Did he know that Spider-Man was Peter Parker and that Peter Parker was going to be in Venice? So they, he had that scene in Venice? Or did did uh, Nick Fury know that the Elemental was going to tackle Venice? So he, because he was being ghosted by Peter, he sent them on a class trip to Venice? Like, I, th- how... I, think that, I got that for you here, Peter. I think that once Mysterio got in with Nick Fury and knew that Spider-Man existed, he was able to pull all the strings. I think this is all Mysterio all the way. And as we learned later on, the real Nick Fury probably would not have fallen for this, as the uh, second post-credits uh, scene deals with quite humorously. All right, so Jacob, I think you have to leave us, right? Uh, yeah, I have to duck out a little bit early, uh, but I trust you guys to talk about this movie and uh, and be as excited about the end credit scenes as I was, because they're both fantastic. <laughs> all right, so thanks for joining us, Jacob, and we'll get to those end credit scenes in just a little bit. Before we do, though, I, I'm curious, Peter, you were talking about the um, sort of the logic of this movie. Um, there's these sunglasses that, that Tony Stark introduces and, and sort of uh, posthumously, posthumously passes down to Peter Parker, uh, and he refers to them as Edith. And I think, the, what, what do they stand for? Uh, even Dead, I'm the Hero, I think. Which I thought yeah, was a, a pretty, so funny. pretty great so joke. Um, it's very in line, in character with Tony Stark, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, it reminded me, you know, we're talking about other other films, you know, Iron Man 3 and some of these other movies that this uh, reminds us of. This is the most Dark Knight moment of this whole thing to me. Like, the idea of having this technology, and, and I guess this is something that has been explored in the MCU before, but having this technology that... Um, that just like invades privacy uh, in such a, a direct way. Um, did you, were, were there any new ideas presented here in, in the form of these glasses or, or anything that you, um, that you picked up on Peter? Not really. I mean, I, I do enjoy that sequence where he almost kills Brad uh, unintentionally. Like it, it's a lot of fun, but at the same time, I think it's my main problem with this movie where it kind of goes too broad and big and it's kind of ridiculous but 
I'm enjoying it while it's happening. So yeah. I guess I can't complain too much. <laughs> um, all right. So let me see here. What else do we I have? Think- I do like that it also allows Peter to sh- kind of show his moral compass a little bit because even though he realizes he can see what everyone's doing on their phones, and for a quick second he thinks, oh, he's like, I can see what MJ's doing, and he's like, no, he's like, that's that's terrible. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good point, and that that like, um, I think that's one of the the things that the movie does really well is balance the Spider-Man and Peter of it all, um, and I think that's one of the reasons that Tom Holland is so great is because he's he's like fully believable as both, and I think you know this is just another great performance from him. Um, let's talk about the, the Peter Tingle sequence, which is like the very end of the, of his confrontation with Mysterio. Um, I don't know, like, did you guys think this joke was good enough to repeat 50 million times in this movie? Like they did like this Peter Tingle thing for the spider sense. I don't think the joke was good enough, but I think that payoff of the Peter Tingle sequence was good enough, like for all that, like nightmare sequence and like, I don't know. It was just such a great visualization of putting us in the point of view of spider-man having that spidey sense like there's really no way of doing that visually as you can do in like the comics mm-hmm. like it's, it's kind of a feeling and i feel like this was the best way to visualize it. i thought it was a really cool sequence um hc brad what did you guys think about the way that this was visualized maybe like in comparison to the way that it's been done in previous spider-man films I think it was really effective. And yeah, I think that the Peter Tingle joke was hit over the head a few too many times, but um, the payoff of that sequence, like all the other uh, mysterious sequences, were very was very visually inventive. And I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. What about you, Brad? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there too. It's, that sequence and then the combination of that with the nightmare sequence, uh, I, that was the first time I felt like uh, this version of Spider-Man really tapped into uh, the more artistic side of what we see in comic books and on pages. Uh, it reminded me of like how Taika Waititi so successfully brought the more uh, you know bold and vibrant pages of Marvel Comics uh, to screen in Thor Ragnarok, and I feel like those sequences in particular really brought to life uh, a lot of like classic Spider-Man comics kind of feel. Actually, this sequence too, it made me wonder if. Um... John Watts and, and the the team behind Far From Home took some inspiration maybe from Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and how it dealt and played so uh, inventively with the um, the visual form. And uh, I think that maybe they were inspired perhaps to do something a little different. Yeah, interesting. Um, I thought a little bit about uh, Into the Spider-Verse as well, but Mostly, I just spent a lot of the time wishing that this movie was as interesting as that. Because I mean, I like this movie. I don't movie. think it can can be that. I know, I know, I know. That's that's what I was gonna say. It's an unfair co- comparison because that film is just like it's working on a whole different level. And I, I do like this movie. I just, um, yeah. I mean, w- when you compare anything with Into the Spider Verse, uh, most things are gonna uh, pale in comparison. But um, all right, so l- let's talk about the end of the film. And HC, you wrote a piece called "What the Spider-Man Far From Home Post-Credit Scene Means for the Next Spidey Adventure." We'll link to that in the show notes but run through for us what happens at the end of this movie and um and what you made of it so in the uh i guess this would be the mid-credits scene um this is uh we see peter parker back in his hometown of new york city and in his spidey suit swinging alongside mj and uh after they uh part ways for the from their little date um a digital billboard starts airing this broadcast from none other than J. Jonah Jameson. And uh, this is 
this J. Jonah Jameson is also played by none other than J.K. Simmons. And this was a huge surprise to me, a pleasant one. I actually screamed in theaters when I saw this happen. Uh, If you don't remember, J.K. Simmons played J. Jonah Jameson in the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. And uh, he reprises his role now in the... the, um, Spider-Man Far from home. home series. <laughs> yeah, home Far series. Home. I like that. I don't know. I like home <laughs> series. Yeah. And uh, this is something that uh, will probably be confusing to some casual moviegoers. No, this isn't a multiverse version or some sort of sequel to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. This is just well, a case of... To, to be fair, there's no way that we can't definitively say that yet because this this could easily still be a multiverse version of Spider-Man. But it's but but there's just True. there's just well, no connection between any other multiverse. Yet. What I mean is that it isn't the J.K. Simmons from the Sam Raimi Spider Verse uh, Spider movies coming right. over. He, he, well, he's becoming... working for a website, the Daily yes. Bugle dot net. Seems like more of like he's like an Alex Jones type in this. Yeah. But you do you do bring up a point here, HT, when you're bringing up the Spider-Man Home series. I'm wondering since the first one is Spider-Man Homecoming. This this one is Spider-Man. Far from home, and what happens in this end credit scene? Could the third movie be called Spider-Man No homeless. Way Home or Homeless? <laughs> Spider-Man No Way Home, I think, is, is a better. I feel like homeless here, is a bit but... too a, of a <laughs> charged term. Um, but yes, um, so J.K. Simmons, as J. Jonah Jameson, appears on the digital billboard with a video clip from Mysterio, who in his final act had sent a message. Uh, claiming that Spider-Man had attacked him for no reason and that he was responsible for the drones that wreaked havoc on London and uh, essentially killed Mysterio. So this frames Spider-Man as the villain. And um, in his final act, he also reveals that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And it's a huge shocking moment. And like you said, J. Jonah Jameson is... um, now a sort of conspiracy website, Alex Jones type type for the Daily Bugle.net, no longer a newspaper man, but this fits his character quite a bit, a very blustering sort of uh, spokesperson. So this this is uh, the big end credits twist that feels like it was almost more significant than a lot of what happened in the movie. Yeah, that's the thing about this film. I think like you could make the case that it's mid-credits and post-credits scenes are the most important things that happen in the film. But um, before we get to those, uh, Peter and Brad, I want to hear what you guys thought when you first saw J. Jonah Jameson, or, or J.K. Simmons, rather, back on the screen. Yeah, I I mean, this is this is just awesome. It's, a lot, for the longest time, people were, had been talking about who is going to be better than J.K. Simmons at playing J. Jonah Jameson. His portrayal as the character in the Sam Raimi movies was perfect, and it was hard to imagine anybody else taking that role. And so I think... Uh, Marvel made uh, a pretty smart decision bringing him back, if, if only for the fan service. I think it will result in maybe some confusion for people who aren't entirely uh, familiar with that, and people think, well, wait a minute, does this mean Tobey Maguire Spider-Man existed before this? And um, but I, I just, I, I love the idea of having him in the, in the MCU now, um, and I, especially him dealing, uh, being sort of a, a foil for this younger Peter Parker, you know, a Peter Parker who is. Uh, much more of a wise ass than even Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man was. I think it'll be interesting to see how those two, you know, uh, interact with each other from here on out. 
By the way, speaking of wise ass, the, that scene in the like the bank robbery scene or whatever that was in the trailers wasn't in the movie itself. Yeah. The one yeah. where he's talking to like yeah. John Watts had talked about that elsewhere. I um I posted about this in the superhero bits or either earlier this week or late last week or something like that. Um and it was just one of those things that where he said they cut it because it kind of interrupted the flow of the movie and it didn't really do anything to pro- progress the story much. Yeah, I, I love J.K. Simmons, and I want more of him as J. Jonah Jameson, but I feel like this is going to confuse some people. Maybe I'm underestimating audiences, but uh, but I, from what I wanted to ask you guys, is there a Marvel movie, a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie that has two uh, end credit scenes that are as, like, story-changing that than, than these two? Like, I feel like usually it's, like, one maybe – you know, thing that changes the future of the MCU and then one joke. But this, like, had two, like, really powerful end credit sequences. Yeah, it's a good question. I can't think of one off the top of my head. The first thing that comes to mind is, like, Thor the Dark World, where it, it, it shows um, Thor and Jane Foster, like, reuniting in the post credit sequence, which is, like, you're going to, you know, that seems like something that should have happened before the, the credits came up. Um, because if, if audiences just walked out of the theater, they would have missed the reunion of the two romantic leads in the film. So that seemed like pretty important at the time, but, uh, obviously pales in comparison to anything like this, where it's like, you know, universe altering <laughs> implications basically. Yeah. The closest and that, I that also had of... the setup of, I was going to say that also had the setup of the guardians of the galaxy, them putting, I think the stone in with the yeah, collector, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The closest I could think of is the Ant-Man and the Wasp ending credits um, in which yeah. uh, uh, Scott is stuck inside the quantum realm while everyone else gets dusted. Yeah. Even that, though, there's only one. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Peter. I, uh, there's also the, the um, wasn't the post credit scene for uh, what was I think I don't remember which movie it was, but there's the, the post credit scene where Captain uh, Marvel. Oh, what? sorry. No, I don't know if you're thinking about the same one I was. No, Go it's ahead. The, the one with uh, with Cap and Falcon when they have the Winter Soldier um, held up in that. Yeah, that vice. may have been on the and, original Ant Man, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, and they hint, they hint at getting Ant Man into the fray for Civil War. Oh, and I just remembered the Captain Marvel end credit sequence where uh, the Avengers meet Captain Marvel for the first time, and then in uh, Avengers Endgame, she already knows yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, but I feel like the other one is just the cat on Fury's desk. So I feel like usually it's like one big one and then right. one joke one, and this one, it, I mean, this is partially it's, a joke. It's but. yeah, it's still kind of a joke one, but it does reveal something that requires much more explanation so, in the future. So let's talk about yeah. the future. Yeah. What do you guys think that this means for the future of of the MCU? Like Peter, you know, I think. Uh, Peter Soretta, you wrote in our notes here, does this mean that this is the end of Secret Identities? I think Peter Parker was the only one who was like actively trying to hide his identity from the world, and now that it's been broadcast by Mysterio and Jameson, that seems to be, you know, the cat is out of the bag there. So, I mean, this is like a, a life-changing, life-altering moment for Peter Parker. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is a big this is a big deal. What do you guys think about this? Um, I think it it's a big deal, and it also kind of changes the DNA of Spider-Man as a superhero. His whole conceit is that he has that hidden identity, and he he's always struggling between his dual identities and his two lives. And taking that away, I 
don't know if you can have the same Spider-Man that we've known for 50 plus years. And um, I'm not sure how it would, would work out. But then again, when Iron Man threw away the idea of the hidden identity, we thought that was something that was completely yeah. um, just radical. But it worked really well with the MCU. But again, I also think Spider-Man is a different mm. beast. I feel like it runs me rubs me the wrong way because it's just done as a, like a quick like surprise and like in the comics it's done with him choosing to do that when Civil War in the comics like mm. you know they they have that act and he chooses to actually reveal himself and be part of the, that whole thing. Um, what I'm wondering though, I want to know what you guys think of this because I'm trying to like I want to revisit Homecoming. I'm trying to think of like what is Peter Parker's arc throughout these films thus far because it seems like at first he wants to be avenger then he turns it down then he accepts being avenger then he doesn't want to be the avenger like it seems like very back that's, and forth and it doesn't make much sense to me that's a I good mean, point think, oh I, go I ahead like it makes, i think it makes perfect sense just because of he's a teenager and you know teenagers are constantly flummoxing back and forth between these big ideas of what they want to do and then realizing how difficult it is to actually do those things and so considering Peter Parker is like 16, 17 years old now, I think this whole idea of going back and forth of, uh, oh, man, I like I need to do things uh, with my superpowers and I want to be an Avenger. But, man, maybe I should kind of lay low because it's actually a lot harder than I thought. And then, well, now I have to you know try and step up and be the superhero. But I still want to have, you know, my this teenage life because I have a crush on a girl and I want, you know, want still have some semblance of normalcy. So I, I actually think that, that it works perfectly for, for this character. And we don't have any other character who uh, has to try to do those things, to balance their normal life with uh, being a superhero. There were, there was some of that with uh, with Tony Stark and their, his relationship with Pepper Potts every now and then. But I feel like this portrayal of it is mu even more so uh, integral to who Peter Parker is. I do agree with Peter, though, that I think Peter's arc is a bit of a mess. And my it's my issue with Peter's um, story being so tied and int intimately tied with Tony Stark and Iron Man. And I feel like his arc almost revolves around Iron Man in a way that uh, takes away from his own um, personal arc and growth. I, 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 would, I would agree with that if if it wasn't for the case that we don't ha have a retread of the Uncle Ben stuff in the traditional sense. And so mm -hmm. I feel like that does for Spider-Man what Uncle Ben normally would have done if we would have started with Spider-Man's origin story. Yeah. No, I, I like that. But um, I do feel like, and I've said this on the past on the podcast, and like in the comic books, there's this like great runs of stories wow. that have these fantastic arcs. And then all of a sudden there'll be like this big crossover event that comes and like stops that. And then, puts the character in some bigger situation with, you know, all the other characters of the Marvel cinematic universe and kind of forces them into a different, uh, you know, j just like direction completely. And it feels like infinity war and Endgame did that to Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It felt like it came in and completely, he had to take up the mantle of hero. And then now it's putting him back to where he was at the end of homecoming. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. I think I think you're, uh, man. I don't know. This is this is tough because I agree. I think Brad makes a lot of really good points here about the the nature of of Peter's decision making and 
but I think you guys also make some good points as well. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what our listeners think about this. And I, I would love for you guys to write in and let us know at Peter at SlashFilm.com. What do you make about Peter's Peter Parker's arc in the MCU so far? Um, I guess, uh, you know, we're getting into the end of the show here. So let's talk about the, the film's last big reveal. Um, Brad, you just saw this movie last night. Why don't you run down the very end, the post credit scene for us? What What's in general? What happens here? Yeah, so uh, the post credit scene, kind of similar to the um, the Infinity War credit scene, features Nick Fury and Maria Hill driving in one of the S.H.I.E.L.D. cars. Um, and then as they're driving and they're having a conversation, uh, all of a sudden, Maria Hill turns into a scroll. And then as Nick Fury is talking, he also turns into a scroll. And not just any scroll, uh, but Ben Mendelsohn as Talos. And apparently Talos has been Nick Fury uh, and his scroll companion has been Maria Hill this entire time. Um, and if you're wondering just how long they've been scrolls, apparently it's been a while because as we learn, uh, Talos is convinced that he has to tell Nick Fury what happened on Earth with Mysterio and uh, Spider-Man and all this stuff. And so he calls Nick Fury and kind of in a nervous sort of making excuses, rambling kind of way, explains to him how... He gave Peter uh, Tony Stark's glasses and the the Edith system and how things kind of went wrong, but they took care of it. And uh, so then we see Nick Fury uh, on the phone and he at first he seems to be sitting relaxing on a beach wearing a a nice Hawaiian T-shirt and just relaxing. And then as he gets up and walks away from his comfortable beach chair, we see that it's a hologram that disappears and he's actually on this huge scroll space station uh, with a bunch of other scrolls walking around and Fury just kind of in a very chill way, is walking around uh, <laughs> with that Samuel. He's looking for his shoes. Yeah, he, eventually he's walking away, and he's uh, he, he is like he's like, "Where's my shoes?" And he's like, he's like, "Gotta get back to work." So it's it's a it's a little bit of a joke, but it shows us uh, that Sam uh, Nick Fury has been in space for a while, and he's doing something uh, with the Scroll civilization, um, seemingly and likely has been working with Captain Marvel to get them back on their feet after they were kind of uh, brushed to the side and chased down um, like these, you know, uh, refugee terrorists by the Kree. So, well, there's a lot to fill in here, and I feel like it's mostly a setup for maybe what will be coming in Captain Marvel 2, and we'll get to see Nick Fury in space kind of expanding his horizons and learning more about the things that he's uh, not aware of. To me, though, I think the most interesting thing is uh, you have to wonder how long has Nick Fury been gone and how long has Talos been filling in for him? Um, interestingly enough, the even before this movie came out, there were some people who, because of Captain Marvel um, and then because of just the, their knowledge of the scrolls in the comics beforehand, were thinking that this version of Nick Fury uh, wasn't actually himself. And one of the hints that people latched onto was uh, a very small detail in Avengers Age of Ultron um, that ties to Captain Marvel. Because in Captain Marvel, Nick Fury has that conversation with Carol Danvers uh, where he has to tell her something about himself that is so specific that, you know, it couldn't be made up or known by a scroll. And he says that he can't eat toast unless it's cut diagonally. And somebody noticed that in Avengers Age of Ultron, he's making a sandwich and he doesn't cut it diagonally. And so that was something that had people thinking, oh, Nick Fury is totally a scroll. And as much as Marvel likes to plan stuff ahead of time, I don't think that four or five years ahead of time they were thinking, oh, let's plant this little detail because Nick Fury is going to be a yeah, scroll. Yeah, but that could, that, could be a, that could be a retcon thing. 
you know what I mean? It, 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 it could easily be retcon, ab- absolutely. And I hope they do because it's such a little thing and it's so silly that it would be it would just be an awesome way to to make that connection. Um, oh, wait a but, second. So, so how long was Fury gone for? Because I no, feel like that's I, that's the thing. Uh, is you know it's it's hard to know for for sure. But I feel like it would. Do you really think you would miss the funeral of Tony Stark? Apparently he okay, did. Okay, so here, here's well, we the don't thing. know that. Uh, I interviewed John Watts uh, about a, a ton of spoilers for this movie, and Sony has actually asked me to hold the full uh, uh, interview until this weekend for some reason, even though this movie is out and everybody's talking about spoilers already. So I feel comfortable enough talking about one specific tiny moment from this interview that will go up soon on SlashFilm.com. I asked John Watts about this. How long has Fury been... Uh, uh, impersonated by Talos. And according to John Watts, and again, this is, could easily be something that Marvel Studios ends up retconning or whatever, he said basically just since the beginning of this movie. So as far as John Watts is concerned, the the Nick Fury that appeared at the funeral in Avengers Endgame was the actual Nick Fury. So to make of that what you will, and again, that's just John Watts. That's just the director of one of these movies saying that. Um, and, and you know, like you're talking about with the diagonal bread, like this could very, very easily just yeah. be something where uh, if it works in a story later on, you know, different storytellers could, could have, could do something totally different with that. Yeah. And who knows? Marvel might not tell them things. Like, I wonder, like, do you – how much do you think um, – how much do you think Marvel told the actors in this movie about Tony Stark being dead? I think they probably knew. Do, do you have any idea? Do you I think mean, they knew? Just, I... Cause that, well, like, they were whole... filming this. Yeah, but there's a whole sort of thread about how who's going to be the next Iron Man. It's something that all of the supporting characters talk about, too. But a lot of people don't say it. Like when Ned says it, his face is hidden behind a uh, he's on an airplane and his face is hidden behind the airplane. And that could easily be ADR later. And, you know, that in memorandum in the beginning is editing that could have been done very late in the process. Do I mean, like those those murals were not on the wall when they were filming, I'm guessing. That's interesting. Guessing now, now, now I'm going to go back and watch it for a second time and see like, what, would they trust Tom Holland? But like, what about what about uh, uh, John Favreau? Like, his, his the entirety of Happy Hogan's appearance in this movie—not the entirety, but a, a good percentage of it—is about how you know is is him talking to Peter about how he has to step up and be the new Iron Man, basically. Like, you know, well, not going to give that stuff up. He's a pro. I mean, he's yeah. he knows not to give those things away. Yeah, but well, it's also a central part of Peter's like conflict in this movie, him being the new Iron Man and him being having to step up to that legacy. So, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like at least Tom Holland would have known, even if he's horrible with spoilers. I, I know I'm 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 relaying like I really I, I am being J. Jonah Jameson relaying a conspiracy theory. Here, <laughs> but um, I, I the end of Infinity War, they shot two different ways. They shot it as a funeral scene and they shot it as I mean, a game. wedding. Or Endgame, sorry. They shot it as a funeral scene and they shot it as a wedding. So there could have been like an ending where he was retiring and a lot of the stuff could have still worked with Iron Man being retired. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, the, the other thing I wanted to bring up is it is kind of cool seeing this a second time, how they do set up the the scroll reveal throughout the film. Because there's a bunch of times. There's a, a time where Fury's talking to um, Maria Hill about what the Kree mm-hmm. invasion or Kree war or something when they're coming out of the building. There's also a time where, uh, when Peter, uh, meets with Nick Fury and he meets Beck for the first time 
where he tells Peter, he's explaining things to Peter, and he says, your planet, when talking to Peter. So that and seems there, like a weird thing for someone yeah. of someone that's human to say. And there's also another thing that um, someone brings up Captain Marvel, and he says, do not invoke her name. Which oh, yeah, seems... I'm going to say that, too. Oh, yeah. The, the point, uh, the thing about um, Nick Fury only being a scroll since the funeral makes sense because he got that page off to Captain Marvel after Thanos' snap and presume and they haven't seen her and him and Captain Marvel haven't seen each other since Captain Marvel since the 90s so it would only make sense that when she comes back and she's there for Tony's funeral and if Nick Fury is actually there that's them seeing each other again for the first time that maybe they talk and decide that they hatch this plan that he can go off and hang out with her for a bit while Talos stays behind yeah. but that's also not to say Brad that in Age of Ultron, that he couldn't have been away on one of those missions and have a, you know, scrawl replacement back then. I mean, that is also true. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that, that plays out. <laughs> I, I doubt that's ever going to come into play, unless we get a Fury uh, Disney Plus <laughs> show. Um, so I, I wrote an article about how uh, Far From Home sets up some unexpected MCU movies. I'll link that in the show notes and you can check that out. I'll talk a little bit about Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and Captain Marvel 2. Um, one other thing really quickly before we wrap up is that uh, this movie almost showed Falcon as the new Captain America. So that's something that we haven't seen yet since the ending of Endgame, which, I mean, that's a very recent movie. It just came out. Of course, we haven't seen it yet. But uh, there was some discussion uh, between Kevin Feige and, and um, some of the producers of this movie about putting uh, Anthony Mackie in this movie as Sam Wilson slash Falcon slash Captain America. Um, Feige said, we briefly talked about bringing in Falcon as Captain America at the end, uh, like maybe once Peter's arced and he's sort of like leading the team, like maybe he calls in a favor. Oh, actually, that was um, that was Eric Carroll, the, the executive producer of Far From Home, who said that, not Feige himself. Uh, he said, but we also thought it was really important to the arc of this movie that there not be... Uh, other Avengers available to Nick Fury or Peter, so he'd have to step up and do it himself. So that that makes sense to me. Um, but yeah, that, that would have been... I mean, again, for a movie that the the most consequential things in it happen so late in its runtime, for them to also introduce the first appearance of, of Anthony Mackie as Captain America in this movie, I feel like would have just tipped it you know, so heavily in, in the in the back half of it um, that it may not have been able to even stand on its own at that point. Like, it's, it's just bringing in extra elements, so. Um. Yeah. I, I, I do want to say one thing with this movie, and, I, and Ben, you said this first in the Slack channel, so I'm really just... Um, I'm stealing from you here. But um, this whole movie, for me, like, I was frustrated at times. Like, I was frustrated with these elementals and being like, this is stupid, these big monsters, and like, oh, it's all illusion. They explained it. And then, you know, Nick Fury would never fall for this. This is so stupid. Like, oh, he's not Nick mm -hmm. Fury. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it's like, I'm spe like, it, it satisfies everything, but it satisfies the logic and it explains everything and everything is fine. But a lot of my first experience with this movie was sitting there being frustrated with what was going on and then later it being Yeah, it's explained. like a retcon within the same movie. And for me, I just, I don't know, that left me, I think that's a big part of the reason why I didn't come out of this movie on a high was because thinking about it beyond just the surprise excitement of what happens in the post credit sequences, I just found myself you know, it, it, yes, it technically answers those questions, but I just, I don't know, for me it just didn't necessarily do that in 
a way that is uh, as satisfying as I often find the Marvel movies to be. Does that, HT, Brad, do you guys, um, does that resonate with you at all? Do you understand where I'm coming from there? Uh, it's like leaving you sort of wanting for more. Yeah, a little bit. And, and just like, I don't know, it, it, it did, it did leave me <laughs> wanting more, but it, it gave me what I wanted, but just in a way that I didn't fully appreciate yeah unsatisfied. i don't know brad okay. does that i don't know what, what do you think about that no i don't i i i don't know i i disagree i just i think that i feel like that works in its its favor because like if anything it kind of helps sweep the rug out from you even more where you feel like you're like you're like well this doesn't make sense and then it's like oh wait it does all make sense you know so yeah. Um, I, yeah, well, I, I would be really irritated if they didn't explain it, but I wish there was a way I wasn't asking that question during the course of the movie. Yeah. I don't know how that would be possible, being, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Even I, even though I had, I was sure that, uh, Mysterio, you know, was creating illusion stuff like that. I still had some skepticism about how just how things were working working anyway that needed to be explained so that I, I was I was satisfied with it because I was watching you know this unfold and I'm like okay well none of this is real I was like but how are they damaging buildings and how are they doing all this stuff and how are they actually making real things move and then and then it's like oh okay there's actually a reasonable explanation yeah, that's the other thing that. too the the use of drones to actually inflict real damage it just seemed like that was like a an all-purpose kind of thing like i don't know if there's any technology out there and i of course it's a superhero movie they can invent whatever the technology they want but i don't know if i bought that fully as like a thing that works in such perfect harmony you know that it would work in that way and i don't know i, I guess i guess i just yeah. yeah i actually i do get what you're saying because while i kind of could buy it for the big attacks the one nightmare sequence while very cool and one of the most visually resting parts of the film didn't quite make sense to me in terms of like how the physical space worked and how he was able to make some punches like literally land versus like walls disappear. Yeah, and, and he stuff. was sort of like in this warehouse I, I, I environment. I want to see the outside version. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I want to see the outside version of that where we're seeing from a third person what's happening to Peter during that whole night, nightmare yeah, sequence. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I don't know. I, I had some some problems with it, but not, not enough for me to, like, hate the movie by any means. I, I still enjoyed it. I, I think I stand by, like, my B-minus overall. But um, I, I, it sounds like uh, our all of our mileage varied uh, across the, the spectrum here. But um, I, I guess before we fully wrap up, does anybody else have anything else that you wanted to spotlight? Now is probably the last time that we're going to do, like, a full in-depth spoiler discussion. So um, any other specific lines or moments or aspects of the film that we haven't talked about yet? No. Um, I really like this movie, despite me bringing up all these nitpicks. I mean, and, that's kind of like what and, this episode uh, is for, you know. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. And any anybody else? HT, Brad, anything? I think we covered a lot of it. I think we did. Okay, okay. Can we talk about uh, Spider-Man doing selfies while slinging through the the New York skyline? <laughs> that was kind of cool. That was cute. It was very reminiscent of the PS4 yeah. game. Man, I just I I just played that game again for the first time since I reviewed it last year and went all the way through it, and it's so much fun. Brad, you you have that game, right? You you've been playing with it a little bit. Yeah, I haven't beaten it yet. I think I'm around sixty some percent through the game. I think the last part that I was playing was I was fighting 
Mr. Negative oh, on man. the Train. That game is so great. If you guys have a PlayStation 4, if you're listening to this and you don't have that game, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's like one of my favorite video games of all time. So uh, there's um, I, I, one thing I was interested in. This is just kind of a small, I'm sure it's just an Easter egg thing, but th- there were a couple other suits that you could see when Spider-Man was building his new suit um in the holographic interface that he was using on that lab that was on the jet that is now blown up um and so i was wondering if like those uh what other like prototype suits like tony had created for spider-man because there was a couple other ones there and uh, i didn't see any that looked like any suits that i recognized from like any comic variations or anything like that one of them did look a little bit more iron man-esque than the other ones um, even more so than the Iron Spider suit, but uh, now that Iron that Spider Man has uh, four different uh, Spider Man suits, I wonder uh, how he decides which one he'll like wear all the time. <laughs> yeah, goes with whatever. Maybe it's per scenario, but I, I, you know, I really love that moment where he's putting together the suit and he like you have that like Tony Stark moment and uh, Happy Hogan goes into the driver's seat and starts playing bl- uh, Back in Black. I don't know. I thought that was like a really good like end. I mean, I I know we've had like ten endings to Tony Stark <laughs> now, but I think that was a, a great tribute. And they, the other thing I wanted, one last thing I wanted to mention is when they were at the charity fundraiser, uh, behind the scenes with um, Aunt May and Happy Hogan. There was a sign in the background from this old wrestling event, uh, advertising Crusher Hogan. And uh, for those of you who don't know, that is in the comic books, the wrestler that Peter Parker fought and, uh, became Spider-Man. So, uh, so there is a little Easter egg in the background of that scene. If you want to see it again. All right. So I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of slash film daily. I believe we're going to take tomorrow off because of the 4th of July, but we do have a special midsummer themed spoiler discussion coming to you on Friday. So stay tuned for that while you're out enjoying the holiday. Uh, be be sure to refresh your, podcast feeds and you'll hear me and and ht and uh chris and jacob talk about that and a bunch of interviews and stuff from that film as well so there's a good conversation coming your way um we hope that everybody has a great fourth of july and yes that's going to do it for today's slash film daily so you can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show we have a bunch of uh, spider-man far from home coverage coming to you you know that's already on the site right now and a bunch of stuff that's still planned to be scheduled uh, and, and published over the next couple days so stay tuned for that uh we will link the things that we talked about in the show notes of today's episode and the podcast is published every weekday bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on uh, itunes google podcasts overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please send your feedback questions comments and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air also don't forget to rate and review the podcast on itunes i know i say that all the time it really 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 does help us out a lot in terms of visibility and stuff like that tell your friends about the show spread the word thanks for listening happy fourth of july and we will talk to you guys on friday